Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast. Bill Proudman and I have two guests with us that we've spent time in white men's caucuses with before over the years. They're both been police chiefs. Mike Reese is, uh, was the police chief of Portland, Oregon, when he went to the caucus with the mayor and the police commanders. And uh, now he's the sheriff of Multnomah County. And Paul Snell was also a member of the St. Paul police when he went through his white men's caucus some time ago, a special supporter of the chief there. And then he's been a police chief in several suburbs of Minneapolis, now the commissioner of corrections for the state of Minnesota. So welcome, Paul and Mike. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So, you know, given everything happening in the world, you all in the protests and, uh, you know, with the George Floyd and the reactions, you all have been at the heart of it. Paul, you're right there in Minnesota. Mike, you're right there in Portland, where there's been all kinds of uh, activity and protests and stuff. I want to take you back to your caucus, the four days you spent with the White Men's Caucus. Mike, you were with all the police and the mayor in Portland. And Paul, you were with half corporate guys and half of uh, your other colleagues from the St. Paul police back then. It's you know, what was your experiences going through the caucus and your learning from there? How did it impact you? Um, what were some of the big takeaways then? I, I can certainly jump in first, if that's okay. Uh, again, this is Mike Reese, and I'm speaking from my time when I was chief of police uh, in Portland, and the mayor, Charlie Hales, brought us all together, our police command team and uh, his staff, and we had, uh, I think, a really positive experience in uh, learning and reflecting on the challenges faced by people of, of color in our community. And it allowed us to have our eyes opened to the experiences that we could never share, the challenges, the barriers to success, the racial and ethnic disparities that exist within our criminal justice system, and how we could start to uh, reach out to our command team that were uh, people of color and to engage them in a more meaningful way, and then to also learn from their experiences and then have that uh, really be a transformative experience with our community as well. This is Paul. I, I think it's there's a crazy sort of irony and the fact that uh, you can go through this experience with a bunch of white guys and learn a lot about what it means to not be white. And I think part of that both was a reflection on the fact that that being white actually mattered. I think for the first time I thought about it in that lens and that really, I think, helped me understand 
some perspective about uh, people of color and and women. And I think that was really, I think, incredibly eye-opening. Our caucus also, as as, uh, Michael, you pointed out, was mixed in terms of we had a a group of police officers from St. Paul, as, as well a number of corporate people. And it was incredibly interesting I think for for the police officers who were in that group to, to look at themselves uh, in light of some of these people from very big, big companies who had achieved incredible success and probably were in a place where they could give voice to the fact that their presence in that caucus was really a demonstration of their organization's commitment to these issues. And I think for oftentimes for police, we didn't see it in that lens. We saw it through the lived experience of, of the calls you're responding to. And, and we think about our work in the terms of the work I do. While we might be able to say, yeah, there's disparities, but I'm not a part of that. I, I, I just do my work. And I think the opportunity to come together uh, across the spectrum, uh, certainly as a group of cops from, from uh, that jurisdiction, and then to really learn from and gain insights from our from the, the corporate members who were uh, in the group, uh, really, I think, advanced uh, for me the learning and and for all of us uh, who participated. And we came back and and had a uniquely shared experience. And Paul, I wanted to pick up on something you said when in a few minutes ago, and then pivot to you, Mike, because it really relates to the. One of the questions I had that reminded me when we did our work with you in Portland with Charlie Hales, uh, Paul, I just heard you talk about sort of the the paradox of how can a group of white guys do any valuable conversation about the issue of race in particular. And actually, as we all know, we can and must. And it actually informs our work across racial divide, et cetera. We're experiencing this now. We've seen this all 25 years of our career with our company that some people of color in corporate B&I spaces do not believe that the insider group, in this case whites, actually is in any position to be able to sort of educate themselves and don't want to hire a firm by the name of White Men as Full Diversity Partners. And I understand, I don't, I understand where that's coming from. And Mike, this is where I wanted to pivot to you. I'm coming back to six years or so ago and leading up to that event that we had, you know, up near Mount Hood, the fervor and the the tumult that got created in the city of Portland about what the hell, pardon my language, can a group of white guys, the mayor and the police chief and the white, they've have they lost their minds. And by the way, we're at a golf resort. So that must mean that they're playing golf half the day. And we actually had the press show up and, and you and Mayor Hales did an incredible job of inviting that group in. And that brought some consternation. But I don't know if both of you can speak to almost the oxymoron, like really a group of not just white men, but white men in law enforcement doing this work. Have you lost your marbles? So what, what, what do you remember about that? What, what, what is that? What does that conjure up for you, Mike? Well, it does uh, remind me that uh, I uh, told you, you guys need to change the name of your company. And I say that <laughs> like I, I, I did six or seven years ago. I, I, I say that with a smile on my face. Uh, obviously, it was uh, a situation where coming together uh, under your leadership and with your uh, knowledge and experience, we were able to have really 
powerful conversations that were emotional. And I, I think everyone there came away with a better understanding of the, the fact that as uh, white males, we have extraordinary privileges and opportunities that don't exist for other people. And it's simply because of our gender and the color of our skin. And I, I certainly came away with, uh, with a deep appreciation for the challenges for people of color trying to excel in law enforcement and for the relationships that we need to have with the community to be better stewards of our positions. And how do we provide exemplary service to everyone in our community, treating everybody with dignity and respect when we have this lens as white males? And uh, I really uh, think that the, the caucus allowed us to, to see that privilege and to acknowledge it and to work towards uh, a, a more balanced and a holistic way of, uh, of a, I guess, working through some of the most challenging issues in our, in our society, in our community around race and gender and equity. Paul, I know for you, you must have, a, you must have had a similar, uh, your own experience leading up into that with those officers about what they were going to and maybe reaction from other non-white male officers in law enforcement. Um, so what was your experience leading into that around this notion about, really, if you lost your marbles, only group of white men, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. And by the way, you're spending taxpayers' money on top of that. I think there's a paradox within a paradox here, because over the course of time, I can think of times when, when people of color, when these conversations about race and difference and, uh, came up where people would talk about the fact that, say to me, you know, you need to really get your own understanding of who you are, where you came from. And, and I used to think, well, I know, I, I, I know exactly where I came from and what I'm about. And I think, uh, you know, through the learning process in the caucus, I think deconstructing some of that and coming to that deeper understanding of certainly the broader characteristic of what it means to be a, a white guy, but even more broadly, the differences that exist. And I think because of that learning, I think there was a deeper appreciation for the, the kind of experience of people of color, because I think all of us see certainly some unique characteristics in our own life that, that uh, oftentimes can be disregarded. And, and I think for me and for many of my coworkers and others going through the caucus, I think we were able to see that experience much more plainly for people of color on a much more systemic level. I can imagine that it, it hit you more at an emotional level, what, what the reality is around other people of color's experience, but also us. So how did you take that learning from the caucus and translate it in any way? What did, how did it show up? in your work, either leading the police officer or you're being a colleague with others, Paul and Mike? Well, I'm happy to uh, jump in. I, I think it's a, an ongoing learning process that these experiences, especially when you have uh, quality facilitation that draws people's experiences out and uh, allows people to be honest and genuine, 
that it's an ongoing growth experience. There's no, my, my own uh, sense of this is that there's no there, there. It's not like I'm going to go to some training and now I'm, uh, I'm perfect. I'm, I've mastered how to be the most uh, equitable person I can possibly be treating everybody with dignity and respect. I'm always learning. I'm always growing. And this was a part of that growth. And it's, again, a foundation that you build on. And if you're committed to that work, you don't stop there. It's just an ongoing growth experience throughout your professional career. And you keep pushing yourself and your colleagues to learn and grow together within your professional organization. And you have to have people challenge you and events challenge you like we're in right now. I I think we're going through an opportunity for tremendous growth in the criminal justice system and in policing. And that at the end of the Black Lives Matter movement right now, when we see this period of protest activity uh, start to diminish and we see outcomes from that, in most of our communities, I believe we're going to be better. We're going to our, our, our criminal justice system and our systems of policing will improve and that there will be growth around how we deal with race in our criminal justice system. We're going to have better outcomes. There'll be fewer disparities in our criminal justice system. That Both the, the data will show improvement, but people will feel better about how they're being policed. And that is probably the most important thing that that trust of the community, particularly the community of color, will say that we have a better relationship with our police officers and our deputy sheriffs than we did before. Mm. And Mike and, and Paul, that what Mike, you just brought up about what's happening right now, both in the, you know, corrections and prison system in this country, Paul, with what you're managing in the state for the state of Minnesota, uh, Mike, what you're on the front line for the last, what now, 80 days, 70 days, whatever it's been in Portland with the nightly protests. You know, we've now, we were at the epicenter of the news cycle for a couple of weeks there. I'm just staggered by what the two of you and the colleagues that work with you are managing in this highly incendiary, you know, volatile experience where, as I told you, Mike, on an earlier call, where everybody has their own truth that they think is the truth, not just their truth. And we all have a different rendition of this. And you're in the middle of those gaskets between many immovable forces. What's that like? And what's our work, you know, as white men recognize it's not just white men, but given that we're talking about our group right now, what needs to shift for us as a group related to what you're both seeing in your professional lives? I know it's a fairly broad, big question, but hey, let's go there. For me, uh, I would just say that I think there is, in particular, I think for for me and and for many of the colleagues that went through the caucus, I think there is a there there is a willingness to to listen without the level of defensiveness. That was probably one of the biggest the biggest things that came out of it. I remember even the practical as we processed at the end of the caucus, cops being able to talk about that having somebody react through their lens, through their truth, and, uh, and that truth being very real does not have to be, is not necessarily a personal attack against 
me, number one. And I think number two, I would just say that despite the fact that we can look across all these different measures of people's attitudes and beliefs and and really that there is real change that has been able to be seen in people's attitudes and beliefs, but the outcomes really haven't. And I think one of the things that, that for me, I think is a, an openness or a willingness to face that fact. And I think get honest about the fact that just acknowledging the fact that these disparities and inequities exist is not a problem that I can continue to admire. It's a problem that I have to, as a leader in an organization, really work to do something about, and that is to lift up the outcomes and uh, make sure that we as an institution are addressing policies and the nature of our work to ultimately get at the uh, inequities that, that we further or create or exacerbate. And, and I think that's been probably one of the, the biggest challenges, especially with the, all, all that's going on right now. The scrutiny, the expectations, and, and the recognition that that you know we lead organizations that can create some of these differences is something that we have to acknowledge. And and then I think people expect, and legitimately, people of color and those who have been harmed by these systems expect that we're going to actually do something. That becomes critical. Yeah, I, I agree with Paul that the first thing we need to do is listen to the voices of people with lived experience and then acknowledge that there are racial and ethnic disparities that continue to exist in our policing systems and in our criminal justice system. And as leaders, it's our job to find ways to uh, repair the damage that's been done, the damage to trust uh, with the communities that we serve. Oh. as well as to find better outcomes. And it is incredibly difficult work. The disparities that exist within our systems of policing and uh, how we police are our responsibility, but we're also downstream from a lot of other failures in society around racial and ethnic disparities in housing, education, employment, healthcare. And we can't fix all of that through the criminal justice system. So we've got to get upstream and work on some of those areas while we're also focused on what's happening right now and how we police in America. And Mike and Paul, in hearing you both say that, which I really appreciate, I'm just reflecting on my own personal struggles in this because, you know, like everything, you know, I have an opinion and, and I'm passionate and advocating for certain things and I want to see change and I've got six grandkids I'm worried about, et cetera, et cetera. I also, I have a home in Portland. I have a home up here in rural southwestern Washington. And in the county I'm in right now, the sheriff of this county, who's been, you know, written up in some national publications for the way in which he has taken a politicization of the issue and basically, it's around that whole, I mean, the masking, the anti-mask versus the mask is just one version of that, right? It's sort of like you're taking away my personal liberty and telling me what to do. And I see that a lot for me as my work with other white men, given that I, I was inculcated and acculturated around that rugged individualism piece. And I love my tenacity, perseverance. I can get it done. I can do it. And at the same time, I'm also recognizing I have a responsibility to the greater good in the community, and they're not mutually indis 
indisputable or in, in, in contrast with those, I got to meld those together. How have you seen, what, what's the work for you and your leadership roles as prominent leaders in law enforcement and criminal justice as white men about our work with other white men who have very different stances about, you know, I, I get to do whatever I want. I, whatever the, I mean, how do you reconcile that? What, what, what's worked? What is working? What's the conversation that needs to happen? So we don't just lump law enforcement into they're all either white supremacists or they're whatever. I mean, there's so much negative caricature of your industry and it's, and it's like any other industry. You've got good cops, most, and a couple of bad apples. And the bad apples seem to be really sort of tainting the entire sort of profession. How do you, how, how have you attempted to sort of write that wrong, to, to change that perception, to do that work internal? Again, another large question. I'm sorry. I think that um, I, I can't speak to what happens in other jurisdictions, you know, how the relationship in Chicago or Baltimore or Los Angeles between the police and the community is. I can only speak to what's happening here in Multnomah County and in the city of Portland, but I've seen a willingness here in our local jurisdictions for the police to work uh, with community members on solutions to systemic racism in our criminal justice system. And I, I think that's a new dynamic in policing where you have from the leadership of police departments to the rank and file saying, we want to work with the community on these issues. We're committed to doing better and an acknowledgement that there is systemic racism in policing in America. One of the things that uh, happened after uh, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis was police chiefs and sheriffs across the United States and police uh, officers and labor associations said that was a criminal death and should never have happened and spoke strongly, as I did, about that being something that should never happen in policing and that we have a responsibility as police officers now to call out when it's when situations like that occur to say that's not right that's not the the criminal justice system or the policing system that we want in our jurisdiction or in America and because of the availability of video and social media and the sharing of videos so quickly that uh, the events that happened in Minneapolis were shared across the United States quickly. And the police, as well as the community, were outraged by what transpired. And I think that is that acknowledgement that that is wrong is really important and a commitment from our police departments and our sheriff's offices to work on better outcomes and uh, treating everybody with dignity and respect and providing exemplary service to all of our community members is critical uh, for us to rebuild the trust that has been damaged. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, as, as your points out, I think it's so critical that we that we acknowledge. And I think that I think probably early on, as a you know, as a police leader, I think I, I, you, you tried to. I was trying to find my my own footing. Right? There's an element of I want to show this sense of leadership that that's strong and confident about the fact that 
you know, we're, we're going to be okay. Our community is going to be okay. And I think as I matured in my own leadership, I think that willingness to, as the sheriff just pointed out, speak to the, be honest to, and give voice to the fact that things that have occurred, the systemic racism exists and, and that is uh, across the board. And I see, I think we're seeing today more and more a willingness throughout the ranks of being willing to acknowledge uh, that fact. Conversations that are happening among and between white police officers and officers of color about the similarities and differences in their own experiences. And, and I think there is a, a willingness to, to, uh, to dig into some of these issues and, and to listen to the pain and the uh, real experiences of people of color in the system, and, and whether it's as police or uh, even in the criminal justice outcomes, because we certainly see, see it here and play out in, in corrections with the, uh, the outcomes being dismal as it relates to uh, communities of color. I also think it's, it's difficult because I, I think as we saw what happened play out in, in Minneapolis, the desire to, uh, on the one hand, acknowledge what that what happened to George Floyd was wrong, and then wanting to lift up the opportunity for people to give voice to that pain and the reality of of this repeated kind of story, and then at the same time, the need at some level to try and regain a sense of control. And I certainly uh, Portland has been dealing with that. I think in the days after George Floyd's death, that, that happened uh, here and really across our nation and even internationally. And I think that's the, the crazy part of the world of, of law enforcement is on the one hand, there is this really deep need to have these deep and strong relationships. And, and then there is the need to, to help communities stabilize and find balance, but that has to be done with an eye toward equity that, that I think has been missing historically. Well, mm-hmm. let, me, let me ask you this follow-up question to you both, because uh, I have, you know, it's been a long time, uh, Paul, longer in your case than you, Mike, even though six years, some days feels like it was four decades ago. But I can still remember both of those experiences when we sat in rooms, when I sat in rooms with you both. And I experienced you and your colleagues as what I consider incredibly courageous. And I've learned over time to, def- to expand my definition of courage. Initially, it was like stand up and tell the truth. And now I... I it's also about showing vulnerability, about saying, I don't know. And I, I really, really deeply respect both of you in your prominent public roles. My question to you is one from a place of vulnerability, if you're willing, what keeps you up at night at a personal level about a concern, a fear that you have in the roles that you're in, which for me, I just, I'm daunted by the, the jobs that you both have. I, I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm in awe of that. And I also see you pretty, both pretty grounded in that. How do you do that? And also, is there anything that, you know, what support and help do you need from, not, not that I can provide it, but from me and other white guys? I can be sort of cut right to that point. Again, I asked you about four questions in there. Sorry. Again, I'm apologizing a lot. I'm noticing this. <laughs> I, I could just say that I think for me, I, I found yet another paradox where there is uh, actually strength in, in vulnerability uh, that I think people of color and, and even other white men, I think when I've been more honest about the fact that I don't have all the answers and I'm learning and I 
get uh, insights into um, the systems that operate and the more honest I am about that, I think the, the more that has been acknowledged by, by other people and, I, and, I, and so that makes it easier to do the more I do it. I would say the thing that keeps me up at night, I worry every day that, that while I try and lift up the fact that as, an, uh, as a leader and as an organization, we need to, to dig deep and get at these issues. And I take very personally the fact that I, I don't want there to be some big incident that really, that really reflects a, a, a vision or a value contrary to that. And I, and I think you know, bad things happen in these, in these types of, of jobs. They, they certainly can happen very quickly and be some of the most challenging circumstances people can be in. And at the same time, you know, I want the people who are in our organization to reflect at least a willingness, to be honest about the experience and the outcomes um, for the people we have, serve, um, particularly from communities of color. Certainly for me right now is the very real danger to our deputy sheriffs, our police officers, and our Oregon State troopers, and our protesters, that there's going to be a loss of life. The protests here have been violent. We've had rocks and bottles and steel ball bearings and commercial fireworks and IEDs thrown and fired at our our deputy sheriffs and our police officers and troopers. We've had protesters that have been injured in some of these riots. We've had shots fired in protests uh, by protesters shooting at at each other. And uh, it's incredibly volatile. And I'm deeply worried that someone will lose their life in this. And I think protests are the most difficult thing in policing right now to manage. And it's not just this event. This has been a, a probably uh, since Occupy, an ongoing discussion in policing about how difficult protests are to manage and how volatile and dangerous they have become. And you have lots and lots of people who are expressing their opinion in a lawful, peaceful manner, and a few people using that as a, a shield to engage in criminal behavior. And it makes it very difficult for the police to manage those situations. And that is certainly keeping a lot of us in Portland, Oregon, and Multnomah County awake at night right now. Yeah, you're not, you're you're not only not sleeping, you you're you're working <laughs> up uh, during those late hours. You know, I've I've heard from from Mike and Paulie both. There's some common themes around what you're talking about, what you're suggesting, which is acknowledging inequality, acknowledging that systemic racism exists. I heard you talk about listening, using vulnerability to show you care and to be out there as a human, connecting, building partnership, building, rebuilding trust. Paul, you talked about the white officers and the people of color officers just talking about their differences in the world, learning from them across it. You also talked about not taking things personally that people t- say out in the public. And I'm just, I'm noticing so much of our work over the years has been white men intervening with other white men. And sometimes we collude to ignore these issues or not see them or say the level, the playing field level, everybody just should be colorblind and treat everybody the same. And 
I'm hearing your talk about lean into this other way of acknowledging the differences, slow down and actually connect with head and heart. But there's a strong peer culture in the police and uh, law enforcement. There's a very strong peer culture that you have to intervene with each other. It's, it's a little bit similar in companies too. How do you intervene in that peer culture? I just wondered if there's, we got another six minutes left or so. Is there any other wishes you had for white male um, law enforcement who are listening in terms of as they stare into each other's eyes, what, what else they would do with each other in ways that would move this along? And support them, too. It's not just about helping other people with their issues, but us discovering how this benefits us, too. Well, certainly, I believe we need to ensure that our hiring and uh, recruitment processes, promotional processes, are looked at through a lens of equity and that we're making sure that there aren't inherent biases in those systems that are preventing people of color from coming into uh, policing or corrections or promoting into roles in those organizations. And that's uh, upon us as leaders to make sure that those policies and practices are really looked at through a hard, hard lens and to include not just white males in that review because we're going to have blind spots. And I think it's really important Mm -hmm. to have In our agency, we've hired an uh, equity and inclusion manager to help us with that work so that she can look at all of those processes through a different lens and then provide insight back to me on uh, any changes that we need to make in those practices to make our agency a more welcoming and inclusive organization. And I I would say just for me, after George Floyd uh, was uh, killed here in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. you know, where this the Department of Corrections is a large organization and over four thousand employees, and and so it's it can be expansive and and difficult and hard to connect, and and yet we reached out to to our staff of color, and I would you know, I'd like to say that this was my idea, but you know I, I think it was. Uh, it, you know, it came to me from people saying, look, you know, there's a lot of pain out there. And and how as an organization do you acknowledge that? And as, as somebody who is responsible or the leader of this organization. And I, and so we did we set up these these teletown halls with our with, with a, a staff of color. It was something that certainly had never happened before, at least according to the people. I've only been here for a year and a half. So it's according to the, the folks who were on that call said, this had never happened before. So to, to give voice to the fact that, that, that it mattered, certainly for, uh, to create space for people to have the conversations about what really matters and what the lived experiences of people of color within this organization and the nature of our work, but then to also make sure that there is a crossover there at some level that, that there is the ability to bring that discussion to talk about the similarities and differences of experience. And as hard as sometimes that those conversations can be, even for, for white staff who are saying, why are they inviting these, you know, these conversations that are just for staff of color? I, I think the importance of it and the importance of giving, making sure that we're investing in the opportunity for people to have those opportunities 
makes such a huge difference. And I'm just grateful to them for the opportunity that they gave me to learn about that. And I think oftentimes I think back to the caucus and over the course of uh, the many years now since then that I've thought about some of those group learning experience uh, experiences that we saw and, and uh, were part of in the caucus and the ways in which that that related directly to my years in uh, policing, both as a operational cop or even a police leader and now in a different part of the criminal justice system. And I, I think it's uh, it's real it's important that we lift up and give space for those critical conversations to happen. Mike and Paul, the 40 or so minutes we've been on the call has evaporated as fast as I knew it would. And, you know, I've got 15 other questions I'd love to get to, but we don't have time. I just want to say in closing, I, I just want you to know, I really appreciate the paradoxes that I'm watching you both manage in my understanding of the roles, which, of course, I only stand, understand about this much about what you do. I'm really a privileged, Mike, to sort of, um, you know, have a house in the county in which you are sheriff and it actually warms my heart for both of you to watch how you sort of live the paradox of being in your heart in jobs that are tactical, are life and death. And you're, you know, you're dealing with just unthinkable things that you're having to manage in a split instant. I just want you to know I really appreciate it. And, I'm will, and I also really appreciate your willingness to sort of engage and speak from your heart around these topics, which I know are so important to all four of us. And, and all the listeners that, that come on this. So thank you mm-hmm. for this short conversation. We'll have, to do, we'll have to do some more of it. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I agree with Phil. Thank you for just being willing to be modeling on your journey around diversity as white male leaders in law enforcement around these topics. And, you know, you're both talking about how it's a continual, never-ending process. And to do that publicly is inspiring. Thank, thank you, you for, for the opportunity. Yeah, I, I appreciate it as well. Uh, it started with uh, the work that you all helped us uh, get into these issues. So I'm, I'm appreciative. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Be well, be safe. Thank you so much. Peace. So we Thanks. Again. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFTP and FTP Global, visit wmftp.com slash podcast.